Our first scripture reading this morning is from the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, found on page 112 in the New Testament of your Pew Bible. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. From the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, the first 10 verses, we have one of the sheep stories. Truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's quiet our hearts for a moment in prayer. Your word has been sown into our hearts, O Lord, and so we ask that your spirit quiet the voices that are not your own, that that word may take root and grow, and we might discover the abundant life of your promise in Christ. Amen. After many years of extreme drama, my great-aunt Betty finally married. We have a copy of her absolutely wonderful diary filled with dramatic angst, born of an age when dramatic angst was not only common in diaries, but also incredibly beautifully written. Aunt Betty's sister was my grandmother Ruby, my mother's mother, and they were both born at the very beginning of the 20th century, one in 1903, the other in 1905, and Betty was the elder. It was an age when people didn't simply want things. They desired things with great pining, or at least that's how my aunt would write it in her diary. And my great aunt, Betty, 
pined for a husband. Not just any husband. She wanted a man of God who carried her pining for lost souls. God finally answered her prayers as she married a Baptist lay preacher named, and I kid you not, Ithiel Pithiel Brookert. It's fun to say, try it when you go home, Uncle Ithiel. Uncle Ithiel unfortunately passed away before I came along. And then my Aunt Betty lived decades pining in his absence. But I heard as a child many stories of her beloved husband, who I don't think saw death according to her. He merely ascended into heaven. My great-uncle Ithiel had a day job. Fortunately, my father said, he wasn't a very good preacher. He worked at the ticket office for the Union Pacific Railroad. But his great desire was to be a traveling evangelist. He took every opportunity he could to join the preaching circuit in and around Omaha, Nebraska, sitting in cramped cars with other would-be evangelists, barnstorming some unsuspected rural town with revival hymns and fervent sermons, pleading with those who had gathered to turn their backs on sin and be saved. I thought of Uncle Ithiel preparing today's sermon because the term found at the end of our reading in the book of Acts is this, day by day, wrote Luke, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Those who were being saved. We Presbyterians don't talk much about being saved, do we? And historically, that's for good theological reasons. Don't get me wrong, Presbyterians indeed believe in salvation. It's just that we are being saved by grace through faith, which is a gift, the faith in Jesus Christ. But evangelism, where someone chooses their faith in Christ and therefore becomes saved, is a little tricky. Presbyterians wanted to make sure that we did not mistake anything that we did as agency in the Great Salvation Project. That if we thought that we had done the choosing without it being a gift from God, then somehow we could take a little sliver of credit for how wonderful we were and how unwonderful those who did not make the same choice are. They took seriously the words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The work of salvation is understood as God's own work from beginning to end. Otherwise, we could take some credit for confessing, for going forward, for dropping to our knees, for repenting from our sins, to somehow say we chose to be enlightened by God's message. Of course, if you think the kind of appeals from my uncle Ithiel's evangelistic campaigns, you can understand the tension for those great evangelists who were in my childhood. The world could be divided between those who were saved and those who were unsaved or damned. And what sorts of categories are those who confess their sin and turn to Jesus 
and those who have not. And at the conclusion of each rally, one could tabulate the number of souls that would be found in eternal glory and the number of souls who had just missed the boat. You could actually count them, and they did. The success of the evangelistic campaign was based upon the count of souls that had been rescued from hell itself, perhaps by the grace of God, but also by the eloquence of the evangelist. Historically, for us as Presbyterians and other denominations with Calvinistic roots, we've remained kind of on the sideline of the tent meeting. The evangelism that would create the sense of possibility that we might think we've participated in our own salvation by going forward at an altar call. We are predestined, we claim, by a sovereign God and no path forward at an evangelistic campaign even that has been cleared of all of the encumbrances would make anyone more saved or anyone less saved, lest anyone should boast. Of course, if boasting were the only problem, Presbyterians would have a certain responsibility and culpability in that outcome. It's a little hard to keep your humility when you know you're one of the elect, am I not correct? We didn't choose our salvation, but thanks be to God, <laughs> we're one of the ones that are included, right? Then again, hubris is a constant foe in every religious tradition. There is a place for salvation, the works of salvation, even those who are not counted among the elect. Eternal salvation may be from beginning to end God's own work through the grace of Christ, inspired by the gift of the Holy Spirit. But for today's purposes, let's just leave all of that conversation to theological speculation, shall we? There's another kind of saved, however, and it's the one that I think we pay the least attention to in church. It is one spoken from the reading from the book of Acts that Shannon just shared with me. It should be the hallmark of every Christian life, whether it is a gifted Christian life or a chosen Christian life. In our lesson this morning, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. He is the one whose sheep know his voice. They follow him unafraid. It's no accident that Psalm 23 ripples through our head as we hear this passage from the Gospel because Jesus is talking to those who have green pastures and still waters and restored souls walking in paths of righteousness, fearing no evil, comforted with overflowing cups. It is the kind of perfect love that casts out fear. In the chapter before, John 9, Jesus has just healed a blind man, and he did so on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were angry because Jesus had messed up their categories. They had their categories of the saved and the unsaved. The unsaved were people who walked around with obvious physical manifestations of God's disfavor. People who were lame. People who had dirty jobs. People who came in contact with dirty things. People who were blind. 
this was evidence of God's disfavor. And all of the rest of the able-bodied, strong, landed, yes, men, were evidence of God's favor. And Jesus came along, and one who obviously was in the unsaved category, a man who had been born blind, Jesus healed and moved that individual from the unsaved to the saved category. And they were none too happy with that reality. Even the disciples got tripped up at the beginning when they encountered the man. They said, okay, he's blind from birth. He probably didn't actually do any sin to make himself blind. So what did his parents do? That manifestation of God's disfavor. Jesus, on the other hand, says your categories are all confused. It has nothing to do with whether or not somebody is blind or blind from birth. It is an opportunity to demonstrate the glory of God. And then he has the blind man go have mud placed on his eyes and go wash in a pool and come back and he could see. And the Pharisees were troubled because you don't just go around saving people like that, especially on the Sabbath Sabbath was for no work. Jesus' job was a healer. He needed to refrain from doing his job on the Sabbath. And one could say at that point, all hell breaks loose. Jesus proposes something complicated, that there is not a category of clean or unclean or saved or damned that the only category is those who have received God's grace and those who are yet to receive God's grace. Jesus identified himself as the shepherd, the one that the sheep did not need to fear. And the implication for the religious leaders is Jesus was speaking that the others were thieves and bandits. It was too close for comfort. In fact, if you keep reading the end of chapter 10, by the end of chapter 10, they are so angry with Jesus that they are picking up stones and going to stone him right there in front of the temple. Now, the passage says that Jesus slips away, but the occasion for Jesus slipping away is even while they are holding stones, they get into a theological argument with one another as to why they were throwing stones at Jesus, and Jesus just quietly excuses himself and disappears from the crowd. It's interesting how even in ancient times we completely miss the presence of Jesus once we start a theological argument. Which brings me back to our being saved. Being sheep in the fold of the Good Shepherd. The one who lays down his life for us. I'd suggest that you can recognize what it means to be saved not by one's behavior at an altar call or one's participation in fervent prayer. It's ones who really understand what it means to have been lost and now found. To move from peril to pasture. I'd suggest that you can recognize the quality of those who know their salvation by the character of their community. And it is the community that is described in the second chapter of Acts. A community of saved sheep feel so safe in the fold of their good shepherd that they have absolutely no problem sharing with one another. 
they had regular church rummage sales. We read there in second chapter of Acts. In order to be sure that everyone had enough to eat, that they all had clothes to wear, that they had shelter and education and health care paid for by the proceeds of the community that loved them. So here's the quality, the hallmark of saved sheep. They broke bread together with glad and generous hearts, praising God. They broke bread together with glad and generous hearts. They understood the great gift of salvation, of their mutual salvation, not from the fires of hell, but from the hell of want. And in this, we are given an insight as to what it means to be saved, to be the sheep of Christ's pasture. We are the ones who have glad and generous hearts. How do you know if a shepherd is a fake? If they're robbers and thieves? Check the level of paranoia among the sheep. If they scatter or bite or butt one another, you can bet that their shepherd is a false shepherd, a robber, a thief. But if there's an easygoing generosity, a grateful sharing, then I'd suggest you might just be finding yourself in the flock of the redeemed. The struggle for us, I believe, is that we're, as people doing so well, we're not actually sure that we need a shepherd, right? If we recognize that we've been saved and rescued from great peril and redeemed from certain destruction, then suddenly the voice of our shepherd rings in our ears as a great release, as peace at last, our longings fulfilled, our pining is over. But if we think we've got enough and everything's okay, we end up missing the depth of our salvation. The voice of the shepherd becomes kind of a distraction. Glad and generous hearts are rendered unnecessary because everybody has everything they need, right? When we don't fully comprehend our salvation, the voice of the good shepherd at best is kind of a tour guide through a museum of otherwise troubles rather than the saving shepherd who sustains us through the valley of the shadow of death. Which brings me back to Uncle Ithiel. In my great-aunt's diary, there's a story that he had told her after an evangelistic campaign in which he said he was packed shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder in an old Packard with a bunch of other ragtag evangelist wannabes, and they were rehearsing their material to one another before they arrived at the tent meeting. The story recalled in her diary was that one had been faced with hopelessness as he had been an alcoholic. But God, by grace, saved him from his addiction, and he was clean and sober. Another had been a petty thief who had nearly been co-opted by the mob. But hearing salvation's message, he turned to Christ and renounced his wicked ways. A third had been miraculously healed from terminal illness. And as each fantastical story unfolded, my dear Uncle Ithiel was discouraged. What could he say? 
He'd grown up in a Christian home. There'd been no great disease, no descent into evil. He'd been a good kid, and his family had always kind of kept him on the straight and narrow. No addictions, no real crime. How could he preach next to these great sinners who'd been redeemed into sainthood? And it was then that it came to him, like a still, small voice. Ithiel, God said, it took as much grace of Christ to keep you safe from those sins as it did to deliver others from those same perils. That was the call to him. To understand that he could preach with a glad and generous heart. Not because of the great before and after, but because of the grand reality of what is. Glad and generous hearts arise because we have a shepherd who's got things covered and we are safe and we can share and we can rejoice. It doesn't matter what our past has been. Perhaps it was good because God was working on our behalf even before we recognized it. And for others, the transformation is in their memory and it is palpable. But a generous-hearted congregation welcomes all and shares in what Christ has given. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please stand and join with me in our affirmation of faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the